This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Uh, You might not know uh, that if you find a lipstick that looks great on you, that you should buy 20 because they're likely to get discontinued. Or you might not know that cross-country skiing, affectionately called shuffling, is too cold to ever safely do. Or that it's reasonable to assume that your grandmother would on a weekly basis fly back and forth from Florida to take care of her newborn granddaughter, Bess, because Bess's mom uh, was working. But that's because Bobby Bell wasn't your grandmother. But luckily for us, she was Bess Cobb's grandmother and Bess, who's a columnist for The New Yorker, Uh, She's written for Wired, which her grandmother called Wires Magazine, uh, GQ, and The New Republic, and is also an Emmy-nominated writer for Jimmy Kimmel Live. What Bess does is hilarious, it's poignant, and it's loving as she shares the story of her grandma, Bobby. Well, actually, she channels her grandma, Bobby, uh, to tell the story in her book titled, Nobody Will Tell You This uh, But Me. So, Bess, uh, on behalf of R.J. Julia's, Wesleyan, R.J. Julia's, and Just the Right Book, welcome uh, to our Zoom virtual event. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me to R.J. Julia. Thank you, everybody, for being here, for taking time out of your quarantine and your day to spend a little time talking about my grandma with me. Um, This is so wonderful as an author who released a book into this strange and uncertain time to be able to connect with you and to connect with readers. Um, And I'm, I'm so grateful for Zoom and for events like this for bringing us all together. It almost makes us feel like we're at a bookstore at a reading enjoying ourselves on a Wednesday evening, um, when instead we don't necessarily have to be wearing shoes. So, <laughs> so Bess, I, I want to make sure that we start the conversation imbuing it with the sort of spirit of your uh, grandmother. So how about if you read uh, a little piece about, so you saved all her voicemails and emails. So you ha- it's not like you had to recall these things. You have a contemporaneous record. That's true. However, um, I actually didn't transcribe uh, direct voicemails into this book. Almost all of them are from memory in her voice in the character of Bobby. Yeah. Um, it was actually too painful for me to go back and listen mm. to her voicemails after she passed away, even though I did save them all. And this is actually something that we can do on a, a Zoom book talk, but not in a real one. I can, show, I can hold the phone to my screen and, and show you. Um, if you've read the book, then you know this image, but here's all of the saved voicemails from my grandma, um, completely taking up my screen. And Beth, <laughs> um, have you not listened to any of them? 
So I have, and I had to listen to them for the audiobook. Some of you may have actually listened to the book instead of um, read it. And um, when I was putting together the audiobook with Penguin Random House, they said we would love to throw in as bonus content a few voicemails. And at this point, it was ridiculous. The book was, you know, the horse had left the barn. The book was about to be published. I still hadn't listened to them. My son was about five or six weeks old. I was a new, new mother. And I had my husband take the baby by himself for, I think, the first time. Um, and I said, I'm going to listen to my grandma's voicemails. I have to find some from my editor. I made this huge dramatic show of it. I cleared the room. I was prepared to cry. I sat down in my, the nursing chair in my, and in my baby's room, and I put the headphones in. And then my husband ran in with the baby five minutes later, thinking I was howling, thinking I was crying. I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> they were so much funnier than anything in the book. I swear to God, my grandmother left a voicemail that goes, Bess, hi, it's grandma. I'm just calling to check in on your laryngitis. Call me back. Click. <laughs> and it was like, you can't make that up. Right. Um, so, so I have, that's a long way of saying I did not, these are not actually transcribed, but I did listen to them eventually to mm -hmm. my delight. So, so let's hear one. Yeah. Without further ado, um, this is, um, if you're following along in your Haggadah, um, <laughs> it's page 77. Um, the, uh, this is a phone call. Would you like me to read the, the phone call, um, from Yosemite or, um, yeah. Voicemail. Yeah. The phone call? Okay. So this is called Phone Call, December 2011. And the context for this, if you have not read the book, um, or even if you've had it, you've read it and you'd like a refresher, this was a phone call that um, I got right before I went away with my husband and his, my now husband, then boyfriend, and his family for the Christmas holiday for the first time. Bessie, Grandma, Bess, ha, thank God in heaven I got you. You haven't left for Yosemite Park? No, we're packing. We're about to get in the car. What's up? You're going to be freezing. It's freezing there. I know. I've packed a lot of warm layers and I'll be inside. No, you won't. You'll be outside. Your mother says you're cross-country skiing. Yeah, Charlie's family really likes to cross-country ski. I don't understand it. It's a ridiculous thing to do. It's not skiing. It's shuffling. It's fun. It's being outdoors and it's not actually that hard. We practiced in Maine on a golf course, but you are not going to be on a golf course. One fall and you snap your leg and you're lying there in the middle of the wilderness and you can't get up. Surrounded <laughs> by Charlie's family. And how's that going to look? They take you outside for one second and you're belly up in a ditch. Charlie led outdoor adventure trips for kids at a camp for five summers. I could not be with someone more prepared for disaster. Well, you're not some 10-year-old boy he can throw in a backpack at a moment's notice. <laughs> you're not exactly small. Charlie... Will you tell my grandma I'm not going to die in Yosemite? And this is my husband's only line in the book. I'm not getting involved in this. Charlie says everything's going to be fine and he's very prepared. I thought you were worried about me being cold. Can't I be worried about more than one thing? Why don't they take you someplace normal, even normal skiing? Somewhere with a hotel and a lodge you can sit in. They like roughing it, being in nature, because they didn't come from suffering. They never chased mice around with a broomstick in the attic and survived on $40 a week. I thought it was $45 a week. It was just enough to starve. Please, Grandma, just, you know what's roughing it? Lying on a straw bed with meningitis 
and the only medication we can afford is cod liver oil from the Italian neighbor whose son got his hand caught in a meat grinder. Grandma, I think I'm going to be fine. Does your jacket have a lining? My jacket has a lining. Bring a hat. <laughs> I just... Oh boy. <laughs> Today's episode of Just the Right Book is brought to you by Care-of. Care-of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term. Care-of can make taking your vitamins and supporting your health goals attainable. Care-of's easy online quiz helps you find the vitamins and powders that will support your specific health goals, like improving your fitness routine or managing stress. Care-of's new line, the Skin and Hair Collection, helps you work your beauty goals from all angles with a combination of targeted ingredients for hair, skin, and nails. Care-of is known for their personalized daily packs, but for a short time, they're temporarily shipping their supplements in bottles as an extra step to make sure they're keeping their customers and team members safe, while also fulfilling orders as quickly as possible. Don't worry though, their daily vitamin packs will be back soon. Care-of is focused on the quality, science, and research that goes into each of their products and recommendations. Care-of's protein powders are made of wholesome ingredients you can recognize, like organic cocoa and pink Himalayan sea salt. So all you have to do is take a short online quiz and answer some questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle. And Care-of will recommend a list of vitamins and supplements specifically for your health needs and goals. It only took me a few minutes and I was on my way. Vitamin aisle can be confusing. It's hard to know what you need and where to start. On the online quiz, you answer easy questions like, how much sleep do you get? Not enough. How often do you work out? Clearly not enough. Do you follow any specialty diets? What are those? Are you concerned about your hair, skin, and nail health? Always. Follow Care-of's expert recommendations or adjust your pack at any time. What you receive is totally up to you. Now today, for our Just the Right Book listeners, we have a special offer. For 50% off your first Care-of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code BOOK50. That's code BOOK50 and enter that code at TakeCareOf.com to get 50% off your Care-of order. Now, back to the show. So, when you... When you your grandmother died and um, how did her passing lead to this construct that you got? Because the, the book is actually, the narrator is your grandmother as told to you. Yes, that's right. So how'd you come up with that kind of crazy <laughs> construct? You know, when you met some, it, maybe there's a woman that you've met who's the Bobby Bell in your life. Maybe you are the Bobby Bell in somebody else's life. When there's somebody who's that much of a force and that indomitable, um, you can't help but tell their story in their own words. Mm. And this was my way of letting her have the last word. Of My grandmother's stories were amazing, not just because of what happened. In, in many ways, she led an ordinary life. Um, you know, she was the child of immigrants. She had a husband who worked and she stayed home. But it was the way she told her stories that were so profound and so um, 
inimitable. I, I, I couldn't do them justice unless I told them as her. And so it seemed the appropriate thing to do. And, and it works because I think, you know, I was trying to imagine if you had told it, if you had sort of written a mini biography of your grandmother, would you have been able, I mean, you're a gifted writer, so you probably could do whatever you want, but it would seem hard to have the her force of nature. Yeah, I think it would be really hard. I mean, I, I think my role in this book is just her straight woman. You know, that I, I my, my voice comes in as the, um, as just sort of her, the person who gets to listen to her and has to react to her and a few times, a few times in the dialogue, you just see silence because she many times just leveled me. Um, but I, I found that this wasn't my story to tell, even though, um, you know, it's about our relationship in the, in the later parts of the book. Um, I wanted it to be her story to tell. Mm, and so, so as, yeah. you know, let, let's go. I was, I was absolutely gobsmacked by this idea that, so your mother, who's a doctor, you're born and uh, your mother's fellowship was starting. Yeah. And she realized, yeah. well, this wasn't going to work out. She got this newborn. Did your grandmother literally go back and forth every week? <laughs> yes. And as she would tell me, I mean, a lot of this is verbatim because she would tell the story so often. She would say, and I wasn't a young woman. Um you know, she was, she, she was in her 60s or, uh, yeah, at that point she was probably in her late 60s. And, and she would, she would get on the plane in Palm Beach Airport. You know, these were the days, you know, obviously in the decades before 9-11. Yeah, she could drive up and, you know, there were a hundred flights a day to New York and she would get on a flight to LaGuardia and then fly back a few days later. And it was expensive and it was a nightmare, but, um, you know, it was, cheaper than than moving to New York um she would um she really would just get on a plane watch me for a few days and then fly back while my parents were on the same shifts at, at New York hospital you know at best one of the things like saying that she told the story over and over again when you went about putting the book together were you a how'd you go about gathering the information but B is, did you worry that some of these stories were just that? That did, Were you worried that you'd start to find out that there was a gap between the facts and the stories that, ever, that had common currency? Definitely. That's a, <laughs> that's a great question and one that I grappled with a lot while writing this. And, um, you know, the genre of this book is nonfiction, but we had to figure out what to put on the cover. Is it a memoir? Is it, what is this? Mm. And it's called a true as told to me story to sort of cover for that creative license, that leeway um, with the truth. I'm not, this is not my grandmother's autobiography, even though I'm, even though what you've read is, her story in her voice from beyond the grave. Um, it's my, it's my voice doing that. And so in the research for it and by research, it just means hours of phone calls with my mom. Um, I was astonished by that gap between what I had heard and what, I, and what I had assumed happened and what really did, you know, I, at many points I wondered if I would write this book at all, just because 
I saw this as almost a therapy exercise. If you have a strained relationship with your daughter or, or granddaughter or whatever, I really recommend having one of them write a book about somebody else because you end up just, I put myself in my mom's shoes um, in writing the story. I mean, the narrative was clear. My grandmother was not a present mother, but she was a very doting grandmother. And that was what I knew. So in calling my mom and saying, what was the worst thing grandma ever did to you? She said, oh, do you know the story of pink milk? And I said, what's pink milk? And if you've read the book, you know, it's a three-year episode where my grandmother gave my mom phenobarbital for um, her lightning headaches due to a misdiagnosis. And my mom was basically a high 10, 11, and 12-year-old. But the story was so complicated because um, of the details that came out when my mom was telling them. And so there, I was constantly, every story had elements in it that I was surprised to hear the truth behind the legend. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I tried to capture as much of that as possible in this book. And did you feel like as you were writing this, that it, um, it, made you closer to your grandma? I mean, you, you spoke to her almost every day. Yeah. So do you think the process of writing the book made you closer, understand her more, allow you to grieve? What do you think for you the mechanism of writing the book accomplished? Yeah, this was therapeutic. Um, you know, I, I, I was half joking when I said write a book about someone if you want to figure out your relationship with that person. But it's entirely what happened. I, I wrote this book because I missed my grandma. And in channeling her voice, I was able to have these insane conversations with her in my head <laughs> again. I was able to hear her again and able to hear her stories again. Um, it was me sitting down in front of a computer for hours a day just thinking about what she would say. And so it felt like a very private grief exercise. Um, for a long time while I was writing. And I mentioned to this to Roxanne before when we were chatting, but there were times when I thought, is anybody going to care? Is anyone going to read this? Um, this is just a personal thing for me because I miss my grandma so much. It's my way of trying to connect with her. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, I think that pain comes through in the book and what I've heard from readers and what I've, I've heard in, in reading Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews is that people saw their own grandmothers or mother figures um, in Bobby because that pain is so universal. Um, and so I almost put my pain out on the page so that other people could experience it through me. And you know, the other thing that occurred to me as I was reading it, you know, during this pandemic, I think for many people um, that I've spoken to or for myself, that you begin to appreciate the relationships that are really deeply meaningful, um, that you do want to talk to all the time and those that you want to talk to a little less. And I wonder if the, the disadvantage of not having not launching the book in a normal way is the advantage that your relationship with your grandmother, I have to believe, touches a universal 
chord about the importance of a particular relationship or the importance of relationships. Have you heard that from people? Yeah, I think I think so. And I'm I'm so happy to hear that from people because when I set out to write this book, there weren't stories about a grandmother and granddaughter relationship that were beyond sort of chicken soup for the grandmother's soul. Mm -hmm. Um, Publishers would look at this manuscript and sort of say, well, which at that point was when I um, um, sent the book out, it was the first 70 pages of the book. And they were saying, okay, but is this just going to be a grand, what is this? Nobody, did this woman do anything extraordinary in her life? Is this a, was she famous? Was there, was she married to someone famous? no, this is just a regular woman's life, but it's about the extraordinary love that happens between generations of women in the same family. And um, I I thought that, the, you know, I, I grew up as a student of literature. And so I would read Saul Bellow and John Updike and Phil Brought, the Jewish male experience was canonized. That's literature. But the Jewish woman's experience, you're the wife or the girlfriend. You're not the front and center showpiece of, of, of the book. And so to hear so many readers say, well, thank you for reflecting an older woman's perspective and reflecting an ordinary but extraordinary love. That really, I think, as a writer and as a granddaughter is so gratifying to hear. Well, the other, the other piece of it is, so in telling the story of your grandmother, there is a incredible portion that's about her mother, Rose, who um, left Belarus when she was 12. And I'm going to have you tell the milkman uh, story about her. But the thing that was striking to me, and we should be fair about this. So my parents came to this country in 1946. So the fact that your great-grandmother came here is like, you're the daughters of the American Revolution version of Jews. (laughs) (laughs) that your relatives were here so early. But the thing that I thought about when I thought about Bobby was being raised by Rose. So share with us who Rose was and how she got here. Yeah, that, um, that is, that was the most challenging part of the book for me because I, I essentially did a college course in the shtetl and pogroms. Um, I, in order to reconstruct what life was like for a 12 year old girl under the pale of settlement in Tsar Alexander II's Russia um, in a town called Pinsk, um, which is about a hundred miles from Minsk. Um, I had it sounds to- Sounds like a vaudeville routine. It totally is. It's not, I mean, it's, it's too schlocky to be true, but it is, you know, you can basically, you can, you can taste the borscht. Um, but I had to, I, I knew the scant biographical details, which is Rose and Shmuley um, were from Belarus and Rose, Samuel, my, my, um, her eventual husband and Rose left. Them. And this is in my grandma Bobby's New York times paid obituary Rose left the shtetl by herself at age 12 and came to America. And that was the most extraordinary sentence. I, I, I ha- that's the sentence I was raised by. Rose left the, fled the shtetl at age 12 and came by herself to by America. By herself? By herself. When I was 12 years old, I couldn't speak in front of my class by myself. You know, this is, 
the the bravery and the chutzpah, the not just chutzpah, the the absolute the wild courage that she had is something that inspired me as as this legendary figure in my life. And then when I made this story feel real, when I put flesh and blood around her and created her her journey for the reader, um, I in order to do that, I called an old college professor of mine at at Brown in in Russian studies, and I said, okay what are the books that I read? And so he gives me Isaac Beshevi Singer and the Atlas of Jewish History. History, And on my, my bookshelf here in my office, I have a whole shelf of just sort of pogrom literature. I ended up reading Congressional Testimony, which is all publicly available. I used a friend's little brother's login for um, UCLA <laughs> library, um, but um, I, I didn't pay. My grandma would be happy. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, but I, 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 had to read, I actually read Italian um, American immigrant um, testimony to, um, to lobby Congress for, um, for protections for immigrants coming to Ellis Island. These brave Italian women at the turn of the century um, gave testimony detailing what, what life was like on the steamships. And it was mm. horrifying. Um, and so take all of that taken together, with one sentence that's real about my grand, my great grandmother, I was able to reconstruct Pinsk um, and what the journey through forwarding stations was. And and brief, would you, um, Roxanne, would you like me to read or or just t tell? Or just tell, yeah, right. yeah. So so what happened? It is there are many many wonderful moments in your book, Bess, and when you're not laughing, the piece on your great grandmother. I think ought to be published all by itself. It it was so evocative of a place and a time and your great-grandmother Rose's, the resilience yeah. of how she accomplished this was palpable in the way you wrote it. So I, everybody's got to go buy the book and read it. I don't want you reading it uh, too much. <laughs> Yeah, it, it ended up being something that I cried while I was writing. And when I finished it, um, I think I understood how and a very important part of that story is that my grandma was never meant to hear the story. My grandma was lying, um, dying at age 10 from meningitis that went to her brain and she ended up going deaf in her right ear at age 10. Um, and I had Rose tell her the story when she didn't think her child would live to remember it because it was so harrowing. People didn't talk about the old country. Yeah. They didn't wasn't talk like about now. the No, it wasn't like, it totally wasn't. The idea that a mother and daughter would have a frank conversation about the mother's suffering was unheard of. Now it's just, you know, it's Friday night takeout. But, um, but the, um, my mother is a lovely person, as you know, if you've read the book and hearing her suffering is a genuine, uh, privilege, but, uh, but she, um, but she really, um, what my great grandmother went through was harrowing and I think is worthy of the kind of suspense thriller that I, I hoped to, to give her because, I can't think of a more high stakes journey than a 12 year old somehow getting herself through Europe. There was no such thing as a Jew coming from Russia. didn't take a direct there. flight either. No, there was no direct flight. There was no economy comfort. Well, there, there was, there, there were shysters who would, who would try to sell Jewish immigrants. Fake there were upgrades, upgrades on the steamer, you said, right? There yeah. were upgrades. There were upgrades that were all there fake. Were I mean, 
the test that was yeah that was part of the testimony um but no my grand my great grandmother story in this book is one that i hope people who read it definitely carry with them as they think about um our current political climate and our the way that this administration has you know treats immigrants i think that it's something as a contemporary person, I considered myself so far away from the immigrant experience. I, I, but in, in researching my great grandmother's life, I went, okay, you know, maybe there are some similarities here. My great grandmother Rose was an illegal escapee. You know, she escaped mm. Russia when you were not allowed to do that. She had to be smuggled out. And so I'm so glad, I'm so glad she was brave enough to make that journey. Yeah. And Beth, how do you think that shaped Bobby? So I think having a really tough mother, having somebody who was not a sharer and was not even a hugger, you know, Rose was somebody who left her mother um, to go across the world, to go to a different planet at age 12. It's the equivalent of your 12 year old daughter going to Mars um, to, to leave Belarus and go to New York. Um, she knew she would never see her again, she left. Um, and I think that created a, atmosphere of tension and, and distance that was how my grandmother learned maternal love. And so when it was her job to mother a daughter, she didn't have resources to, mm. to do that. And um, it was also a product of the times in the fifties and sixties, you know, there wasn't mommy and me yoga. Like I take my son to here in Los Angeles, you basically, you know, you, you had your child, they were to be seen and not heard. And, that's that's the way it was and so my grandmother was trained by a not close mother to be a not close mother and so i think the reason for our connection was that she had this baby that she was looking at that happened to look exactly like her daughter and she could do it all over again mm. so she jumped at that chance and Beth, when i was when i was reading the book i was reminded of uh comments made about my dad as a grandfather versus father, but there's lots of stories that I hear where you see these people that are the most exquisite grandparents, and they were not that as a parent. And I wondered for your mom, was she envious of Bobby's relationship with you? Was she grateful for, how did she feel? Because your grandmother, I think I'm not saying anything that's not in the book, was not the warm, fuzzy mother to your mother. Yeah, you know, I think that those, the envious and the grateful existed at the same time. It's so complicated, and maybe there are um, people on this, this Zoom call who can relate to this, but you see somebody taking care of your child, it doesn't matter who they are, and you see your child loving them and reacting to them, and there's a gratitude because great, now I can do a load of laundry or, you know, God forbid, wash my hair, um, but, or go to work or, or whatever it is you're doing. But, you know, there's this person that your child's bonding with. Um, for it, that to be your mother who didn't do that for, for you, you. another layer of what yeah. the hell is going on, lady. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, the, the reaction that my mom had surprised my mom. And when I talked to her about it, I think my mom was um, so grateful that my grandma had it in her. And my mom, in an odd way, because she created me, was able to claim credit for that love yeah. finally coming out. I like that. I like that. 
Um, so there's, a, we're, we're, I want to leave time for some questions of other people, even though I have about 47 more questions uh, for you about the book, but I want to pivot uh, for a second, because as I was doing the research um, uh, to prepare for this conversation, I even listened to a lecture your, your grandfather, Hank Bell, gave. I did. Uh, which was which was fun, um, but I so you write for Jimmy Kimmel Live, and um, you are an avid um, tweeter, social media person. You have the honor or distinction of being blocked uh, by President Trump. Uh, you wrote this book, you're, you write columns. How do you keep these voices from not invading the other voices? I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated by all your voices. Well, Roxanne, I think I'm just really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you're just talking to an insane person and too bad. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty wild. Um, no, I, I think, I think, um, it's in so many ways, I, I think it's a, a lack of confidence on my part that it's easier for me to hide behind a character's voice than speak in my own. Um, and you know, I, growing up, I would do voices and impressions with my dad. I would speak in a British accent if I, if I had something serious or not really a British, the way that Dick Van Dyke did a British accent, yeah, yeah. Office, but you know, speak in or voices. Sid Caesar. <laughs> Totally, totally. Um, and so I think I've always in some ways retreated to characters um, as a way to say yeah. how I really feel and, um, and express myself. And so writing comedy, you know, for a man, for a famous man with a show is a way to write jokes. And it's not me having to deliver them. I yeah. am, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not the, I was never the class no, I don't do stand up. And I was never looking for a laugh in, in school. I was not, you know, people were surprised that I was writing these funny columns for my school newspaper because I, I was never going for, you know, to be the center of attention, make jokes. I, I love writing comedy. It's my, one of my favorite things to do, but um, writing in somebody else's voice just makes that, makes that easier and gives me permission to do that. Um, Likewise, you know, right, my grandma's voice is because uh, I, I read something that that resonated with me about how there was an algorithm, there's a robot that was able to write in the voice of Shakespeare because it had read 10,000 hours worth of Shakespeare. Um, and I was like, oh, that's me for Bobby Bell. I, yeah. I internalized her because I was on the phone with her or talking to her for my entire, for three decades. If you're, if you say like, okay, what would Bobby say about the salad? I could do that. You know. Right. And so uh, for her, it was such a pleasure to write in, in my grandma's voice because I know her so well in many ways. I feel like it was the assignment of my life. She was telling me her stories because mm -hmm. she knew this is a kid who does, who writes and who does characters and maybe she'll do me. That's what I like to think. So Vess, given that Jimmy Kimmel is still doing his show from um, his house, and given that we've dealt with the pandemic, um, the killings, 
of black men, the race riots, Jimmy Kimmel's um, apology. How how have you? How do you balance the tension of being funny during such difficult times? How do you have to reframe, or do you have to reframe how you write comedy? Yeah, you know, I think it actually goes back to a lesson my grandma taught me, and it's a, it's a common refrain in this book. It's something that her Zader, her grandfather, said to her, which is when you feel like the earth is cracking behind your feet and the whole world is going to swallow you up, you put one foot in front of the other and you go forward. Mm. And for me, and I've thought about that a lot during quarantine, um, but for me, comedy is is going forward. That joking is a way of, stopping the earth from swallowing me. Um, I should also note that I actually left Jimmy Kimmel Live um, a few in April. I, 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 should, up, I should update about, I, um, I left because this book was uh, optioned to be made into a movie. And so I'm writing the screenplay um, for Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. And it's being made by the production company that did um, Dear White People and Bad Education which is an amazing Hugh Jackman Alice movie. Yeah, I, it's, I, if you haven't seen Bad Education, phenomenal. It's about the Roslyn School Superintendent. Um, I have because I interviewed Robert Kolker for the podcast and for the store for Hidden Valley Road. So I went back to read, to read the piece Robert Kolker had written that informed Bad Education. Yep, the New York Magazine piece. That's yeah, right. yeah. So the, so the two of us, the same producers, and um, it's being directed by a woman, which I'm very excited about. Um, and, and how is writing the screenplay different from writing the book or other writing that you've done? That's, it feels like a different... A lot of authors do not end up writing their screenplays if their book is, in fact, uh, optioned. Yeah, and those are smart authors. Um, <laughs> but you have room for one more voice, Bess. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great. Schizophrenia um, has no limits on it. I think I think this is such a hard book for somebody else to adapt because yeah. I am the character and it's my grandmother and I know her voice. And also, I cheated in this book. There's a lot of blank space. There's a lot of dialogue. So there's literally parts where I'm just copying and pasting. Um, but um, and I also am a, a TV writer, writer for the screen. So I, I wrote with sort of scenes in mind. Um, Who do you want that, to play Bobby? Oh, well, I know what my grandma would say. She would say Merrill or nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see. If you, if you guys have any suggestions, here we are. <laughs> All right, let me take a couple of questions before I um, uh, ask some wrap up questions. So. Uh, one question is, I lost my 102-and-a-half-year-old grandmother during this COVID time from a stroke. Um, she would have wanted me to note the half-year mark. Beth, what characteristics do you believe you've inherited or developed from Bobby? Well, first of all, I'm so, so sorry for your loss, whoever submitted that, that question. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, but I'm so, I'm so sorry. And as this book- and during this time. During, during this time, I can't imagine. Um, and as this book, you know, if nothing else, this book I think shows 
um, or I hope it shows that there is such dignity and, and tragedy in the loss of a very elderly person, that it's no less of a tragedy. It's that my grandmother in this book says, the fact of my age is the enormity of my loss. And so being 102 and a half, which is a fabulous distinction, um, being 102 and a half is, does not make it any easier. Um, and so I'm so sorry for what you and your family are going through. Um, and the characteristic that I've inherited, I think 50 times a day, I stop myself and go, oh my God, that's my grandma. It's, it's everything. I mean, the fact that two seconds before we went live, I went, oh no, I shouldn't be wearing my glasses, but I'm not going to be able to see. <laughs> the, uh, that's my grandma going, take off your glasses. They want to see your face. <laughs> but I, I, I would fall off my chair. <laughs> the, um, I'm a gesticulator, <laughs> but, um, but the, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not really a lipstick wearer, but I, when I did, I will tell the story that um, two days after she died, we were sitting Shiva and I went to Bloomingdale's, of course, um, uh, just to smell her, you know, and, and I went to Bloomingdale's and I went to a very fancy lipstick counter and I bought, I tried on, this was pre- COVID, I tried on lipstick, but even then I was, you know, in order to, I did the alcohol and did it on my hand. I, I was a normal person. Um, but I found a lipstick that I thought looked great. And I didn't buy 20 of them because I can't afford to buy 20 of the <laughs> fancy department store lipstick, but I got three of them, which was. Huh, that's pretty good. Yeah. And then I went home and I went, oh my God, I'm an orange cloud. <laughs> <laughs> But so that was me actually channeling my grandma. Actually, one of the, I watched one of your interviews. And so you took a couple of things of your grandma's, but one, and you can share others yeah. that you took, but one was her lipstick, but you haven't opened it. No, I haven't. It's right here. You want, if you want, I can see yeah. some of you nodding. I switched to gallery mode for this. If you'd like to see it, <laughs> here it is. Very exciting stuff, you know. Who says we need to leave our homes to have fun? Here's a tube of lipstick, everyone. <laughs> but uh, no, here it is. It's, it's her Chanel lipstick, Rouge Allure, which is so fancy. I'm sure it's beautiful. And it, you know, it's, it almost feels, it's not, it's not fine to open. Yeah. She, it's, I, I, it would be letting her out. Um, I also have in this box on my desk, the reason we have, you know, an alarm system on our house is basically this makeup compact. It's my grandma. If somebody breaks in, this is the first thing I go to. But this is what um, my best friend Alex and I, after my grandma died, went down to the corner in Greenpoint where my grandma grew up, which is now luxury condos, of course, um, which was hilarious to me. I actually walked into on West Street. On the, I walked in and I, I said, how much does a studio apartment rent for here just to see? And he told me, and the, this makeup compact and I had a laugh. Uh, <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous. I'm never moving back to New York <laughs> unless this movie becomes Star Wars. You, know? you live in LA and you're saying that. Yeah, yeah, LA is very different. LA, you can have space there, you know, because there's a lot of LA. Uh, New York might have, get cheaper. What is it? New York might get cheaper now. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
All right, here's another question. Your mom is a psychiatrist. I found that an odd specialty since she had such distant mothering. Um, I don't know if this is from the same person. I think it is. What an amazingly strong female matriarch type heritage. Was your mother an only child? Are you? If not, how are the relationships different? Yeah, my mom is a, I, I, she will take that compliment. She is an amazingly strong matriarch um, and, um, and a great, a, a wonderful grandmother. Um, and neither of us are only children. My mom, we're both the only girls. My mom has two brothers. I have a little brother who's a genius and, um, and a sweetheart. And he asked me to leave him out of this book. And so I did. And he's thanked in the acknowledgments. And there have been readers who have been like, I was shocked to find out you had a brother. Do you hate him or something? And no, it's the opposite. The, um, in, you were saving him. I was. I was sparing him. The one, his whole life he's had to deal with me. And so the least I can do. Um, he, I said, thank you, Will Cal. But there's nothing I wouldn't do for you, including leave you out of this book entirely. And so, um, yeah, we both have siblings. We're both the only girls. Um, and that I think has created this matrilineage. Um, in the book, I call it "Or the Fruit of the Vine," um, the only daughter of an only daughter of an only daughter. And um, you know, that's just Mendelian genetics. That doesn't make us special. That's just sort of the way the dice was rolled. It doesn't. It wouldn't dilute it if there were. If I had a sister or my mom had a sister, it doesn't make that bond any less significant. But there was something of a focus on, okay, you, you, I also happened to look exactly like my mom and to the extent that my dad's college roommate came to our apartment in New York when I was in, um, in college, when I was home for the holidays and I opened the door and he went, Robin? Um, at, at, like he was, <laughs> and, and I, I was just like, what? No. no. <laughs> and um, and I, the, the man looked like he saw a ghost because I was yeah. 22. So. Um, but I, so yeah, we are all imprints of each other and I'm very lucky to have such a strong matrilineal linkage. So speaking of siblings, but not matrilineal, one of the insane stories in the book, which I have to believe was made up by somebody, but I, I, I assume you checked it was, um, Bobby's twin brothers, Leo and George, uh, George didn't really go to college. Leo was at Columbia in law school and gets sick, like almost dies. Uh, so how did he end up finishing law school? It is not made up. It is, it is true and it gets worse. There is an element of the story that my grandfather told me after the book was published that is so outlandish that if it was in it, people would be like, you have to call this fiction. First of all, the Georgie and Leo, they were identical twins, um, which, and they tormented my grandmother and then my mother their whole lives. Um, Georgie was a deadbeat. He protested in uh, City Hall with his father, my great-grandfather, a communist union organizer. That's what he did, which is to say he was a drinker. Leo was a great jurist and a, and a scholar, and he dropped his Brooklyn accent very young, which Georgie made fun of him for, and he sort of dressed in secondhand but waspy clothes and got himself, went to college and then went to law school um, and got 
very got deathly ill they, you know who knows what it was I, I actually don't know maybe tuberculosis but it was something where you were just bedridden for a year and Georgie not only finished uh Le Georgie was probably inherently smarter than Leo was and was a guy who would add up columns in the phone book and was was just sort of one of those street smart guys who was smart as a whip but never applied himself finished law school in his twin brother's name and then took and passed the New York State Bar, which is in the book. And, and that actually happened. And that's a, that's a story in my family that it gets worse, though. What's not in the book is that, okay, I, I will tell you the way that my, that I will tell you the way that Leo found out. So there are 56-year-old Jews at Seder in New Jersey, in, in, I'm sorry, not New Jersey, in Westchester. Wrong side of the family in Westchester. Um, they uh, are drinking schnapps after the Seder in the library next to the dining room. Everyone's having a good time. Georgie and Leo are, are of course fighting as, as they would do, bickering about who's smarter, who blah, blah, blah. You didn't finish the Sunday crossword, I blah. And Georgie goes, oh, you think it's so hard being a lawyer. You're so special, you're a lawyer. I was a lawyer for a year, it was nothing. And Leo goes, what? Georgie goes, what, what did you, what? And Leo goes, what do you mean you were a lawyer for the year? And he, Georgie said, I didn't say that, you're drunk. What are you talking about? What do you mean you're a lawyer for a year? And so my grandmother walks in and Georgie and Leo, these two old Jewish men are punching each other. They're fighting. They're beating the crap out of each other on the floor. They're, and they're not good at it. Leo's holding Georgie down and going, you son of a gun, you holding him by the shoulders. My grandpa's trying to tear them apart. Georgie, while his brother was convalescent in bed, hung a shingle and did slip and falls in Brooklyn. Leo was going to be, Leo was going to be a Supreme Court clerk. You know, he wanted to shape up. Georgie was taking cash in his brother's name, doing, I, oh, I got hit by a car, oh, uh, and practicing law as Leo. Practice law, which is the most illegal thing a person can do. That's the family that I come from, and that's true. So uh, I want to close this interview by giving the right person uh, the last word. So what would your grandma, Bobby, have added to this book that you wrote about her that she might think you left out that people should know? Hmm, that's a great question. think, I mean, there's so much that I left out of this book. How can you encapsulate, how can you capture a life in 240 pages? You can't. Um, this book could be 80 times the length, but of course nobody would read it. Um, and um, the- uh, It wouldn't be a New York Times notable book, maybe. It certainly would not. It would not even. It would not even. It would not be a book that my husband would read. <laughs> he reads every tweet. Um, the uh, the. I think my grandmother. It's so hard to know what she would think of this, and that's something that I will always wonder. Um, I think she'd be. I think she'd be proud of it. My grandfather certainly is. He's so thankful for this book. Um, he passes it around, um, but before he passes it around, uh, he has him in his car and he literally gives it to like, the parking attendant. <laughs> He's like, you want to know about me? Here, read this book. Um, yeah, but I think she would want, um, 
she probably would want to know, um, want me to include the story about um, before my bat mitzvah. Um, I was wearing makeup, which I put on myself the, from, you know, a drugstore. And it was makeup that I would keep in the jewelry, but every 13 year old girl has her wacky mm -hmm. eyeshadow, whatever. And she takes me by the shoulders and she says, you're going to be furious with me. And then years from now, you're going to thank me. And so she took me by the shoulders and she took a wet washcloth in the temple, not washcloth, a paper towel in the temple bathroom. And she goes, you're just, you're going to scream. You're going to hate this. And she took the, thank God, the frost blue eyeshadow <laughs> off of my eyes. And, she, and the, the rouge that I think I did in circles, like a nutcracker, basically, um, you know, and, and, and wiped it off. And, and she said, you are beautiful just as you are. And that's mm. why I'm doing this. Yeah, that's and great. That's, yeah, so I, that's, and I, by the way, not that I looked great in my bat mitzvah pictures, no 13-year-old does, but I am very thankful she prevented me from looking like an ice skater. Well, I think it's funny because the picture in the New York Times that was yes, about she, you in the book was her fixing your makeup at your wedding. She never stopped. She never stopped. She never stopped. And you know what? Maybe that's how, before I leave the house, I definitely check my makeup because I know what's my grandma going. You've got a little something. Yeah, yeah. So, Bess, um, we could have, uh, I did want to get to your tweets, which, uh, which could be another uh, great conversation. But I want to thank you for joining us uh, for this conversation. Uh, the book uh, so all of you that are on, um, I want to make sure that not only you buy the book and read the book, but you probably want to give the book to anybody who has a relationship with anybody. So <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just say that because you can't, um, you can't um, have a relationship with someone, a friend, a family member, but really a family member without relishing um, Bess's story about Bobby. So uh, thank you all for joining us. So Bess, I hope we get to meet in person at some time. And I can't wait for the movie. And if Meryl's listening to the podcast, do you think she'll consider that a demand that she play Bobby? I don't think you're, anyone's allowed to make a demand to Meryl Streep. I think you could go to jail for that. I don't know. Bobby's a pretty appealing character. If anyone could, she would. Yeah, yeah. yeah if anyone, yeah. if anyone could, my grandma could demand it. But, All right. Uh, well, but I really do thank everybody. Best. Thank you so much. It was lovely to uh, virtually meet you. So lovely to meet you too. Maybe when it comes out on paperback, um, you'll be here uh, in real person, gosh. in real life, real in real life. That would be lovely. Thank you, everybody, for spending time with me. Donna, Ronnie, Judith, Laura, Sandra, Linda, Helen, Erica, Elaine, Kathy, Patricia, Janet, Florence, Sarah, Michael. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.